Hi, I'm Kate. And I'm Mandy. And this is Love Sober, the podcast for the sober and sober curious. Hi there, and welcome back to Love Sober, the podcast for the sober and sober curious. And today we're really delighted to be welcoming um, Joss Connolly on the podcast. And Joss is a resilience coach and also does a lot of work for NACOA. So we're really, really delighted to have him today to hear about his own story and also kind of the work that he does. And um, I'm really interested to kind of, yeah, talk about resilience and what it means and also kind of how us as listeners can support the really amazing work that NACOA does. So um, hi, Josh, how are you doing? I'm good, thanks. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm. I'm. I'm looking forward to the conversation and seeing where we go. So it's. Uh, it's good to be here. Yeah. And you, Kate, how are you doing? Oh, you know, I'm all right. We just. I wonder if you'll ever start a podcast with a, a different phrase. No. Than, oh, you know. <laughs> I don't think so. Not until. I don't know. But <laughs> I'm all right. But I feel major better. systemic changes in the yeah you, yeah. No, I do feel better because I tell you, this morning I got up at six thirty, and I was, you know, doing all the preschool stuff, and then I was doing a bit of our putting our advent thing on Facebook, and I was this 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 and this, and I could feel myself just starting to get really pissed off. Right, I was like, oh, I am really not happy, and then I was like. What's really upset? And I asked myself that coaching question. I was like, what is the one thing that I could do that changed my life? And I thought, I know what it is. It's so boring. Sorry, Josh. Like, we will get on to you. <laughs> and it was like, it's a bloody ironing, right? It's that ironing that has literally sat there for two weeks. And so what I did is I reached out to some friends and I was just like, do you, have you, do you know anyone who does an ironing service? And, and, and like, strangely, people were like, actually, I do, you know. And so anyway, I decided that's it. And I'm like, you know what? I feel this kind of sense of pathetic relief that someone might help me. Yeah. So, yeah. so I'm all right, but I'm not, I'm not great. I'm not like living like my best life and being like Kate super coach. Like, do you know what I mean? Like I love sober. I mean, I do love sober, but I am like, I'm feeling the feels like the rest of us at the moment. Yeah. So, yeah. What about you, man? Well, I'm I'm all right. I just came back from yoga, which was like supposed to help, but it was absolutely freezing. So I'm holding my tea like, please warm me up. But I did. I put in a boundary because uh, I do yoga with a friend. And I was like, I'm really sorry. But like I, I am someone that has circulation issues. I can't come unless, you know, it's warmer or come to my house and do it, you know, because it's kind of like, yeah, you know, there's only three of us. So anyway but other than that I'm all right and I'm excited to kind of yeah have a chat really, yeah, so really excited. yeah lovely to see you Josh likewise um, likewise yeah so you know we always start with our question about just delving into your story a little bit more about how you came to be you know alcohol free and I'm working in this sort of area really so yeah what was could you mind that how do you what was your journey to alcohol-free? The actual moment that I got sober, that I decided to stop drinking, um, I always like could try and sort of glamorize it to be something big, and like I thought about my kids, and I just decided it was, uh, you know, the best thing to do, and all that kind of stuff. But it it wasn't really. It was more 
that drink had stopped working for me and I thought I need to try something else. And I think, you know, the one thing I would say is that for me, alcohol did work in the beginning. I remember when I was a teenager and I drank for the first time, it was amazing. Uh, I loved it. I loved everything about it and I loved what it did for me. And I remember thinking, as long as I, as long as I, you know, keep this sorted and do it properly only on the weekends or whatever, I'm never going to stop doing this uh, because because it did everything I needed it to do. But I think ultimately in, in, in the period, in the run-up to when I did stop, it had stopped working. And I remember sort of being in the pub and looking around and thinking I'm just as miserable when I'm drunk as I am when I'm not drunk. Um, and I think that was the big change for me. It stopped meeting the need. It stopped doing what I wanted it to do. And so I was 24 years old when I stopped. So it was quite a young age. Um, it was quite like a big thing for somebody of my age to, especially to drink the way that I did. Like I lived in that culture, you know, I lived for pub culture. That's what I did. I, I went to the pub every day. Um, it was the central part of my life. So um, what brought me to do it was pain really. That it was the, the same thing that brought me to stop drinking was the same thing that turned me to drink in the first place, which was, trying to solve a problem, trying to fix a part of myself. And, um, you know, it turned out to be the best thing that I ever did because it set me on a path of really finding um, myself on a, on, a, on a deeper level and becoming the man that I am today. And, and you know, led me to do the work that I get to do today that, that I'm very passionate about and that I love doing. So it was definitely the best thing to ever happen to me, but it wasn't... Um, it didn't feel like it at the beginning. I didn't, I wasn't one of these people who stopped drinking and was like, my life changed and got better. My life, I'll, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I didn't say it at the time. I, I said all the things about how I loved it. Uh, my life got a hell of a lot worse when I stopped drinking at first. Uh, the ways I felt about myself and uh, everything that was going on internally. Um, I made a very serious attempt to take, well, I, I planned very seriously to take my own life when I was nine months sober. And I always say that, you know, I'd had a couple of sort of um, one serious attempt and a couple of sort of half-hearted attempts at taking my own life when I was drinking, but it was very, very clear, very clear cut and very serious when I, when I stopped. And I always say it sort of, you know, I started drinking at like 12, 13 and it took me sort of nearly 12 years to drink myself close to death. It only took me nine months to sober myself close to death. Mm. Um, and I think that's quite an important thing for me to highlight in, in, in terms of what my sobriety journey has been about. So yeah, that gives you a little bit of an idea of, of, of how and why I came to stop. What can you tell us about? Like, sorry, man, I know you've had to, no, no, go on. but I just was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about that. Like what happened in that first year of sobriety that led up to that, that after nine months, like what, like, you know, you were amazing sort of mental health advocate so obviously you know mental health is like part of this story um but could you kind of yeah talk a bit more about that because it's such a massive massive piece right mm. I sort of believe that the moment I started drinking when I was 12 years old it became the answer to all of my problems y you know it became a problem in itself but ultimately alcohol the way that I drank was never my problem it was an attempt at a solution um, and it masked my problem. Um, 
And so from the age of 12, when I started drinking it, rather than dealing with any of the ways that I felt, when something popped up, I drank alcohol. Um, and I did that for the rest of my life until I reached 24 years old. Mm. You know, and, and I'm sure we'll get onto it, but the environment I grew up in, with my dad was, you know, had a terrible problem with alcohol. And, and so, I, you know, I lost him when I was nine years old. I never dealt with any of that. I never dealt with any of it. I used alcohol as a way of suppressing it. So when I stopped drinking it at the age of 24 years old, um, every emotion that I'd ever ran away from, that I'd used alcohol and other drugs, but, but predominantly alcohol to run away from, came flooding back. And I had no way to deal with it. And the circles that I was kind of moving in and existing in, in terms of, getting sober, the crowds around me, everyone was just talking about how amazing it was. And so I did what I've always done, which is um, become what the circle of people around me want me to be. I've always been like that, you know, I, I get my validation from other people. So I've always said, if you put me in a prison, I'll act like a criminal. You put me in a church, I'll act like a vicar. So you put me in a group of sober people that are all talking about how amazing it is. I'll talk about how amazing it is. And so I was still doing what I'd always done all my life, which was um, hide my true emotions and feelings and turn up in the way that I thought people wanted me to be. So I said things like, I love being sober. You know, it's so amazing to, to, to have my children back in my life and be sober for them. And my children were coming on the weekend and I hated it. I hated that they come. I thought I must hate my children. I must be a terrible person because I'm, I, I, I've got, I can't blame it on drink now. I can't blame it on a hangover. My kids are coming and I hate it just as much, if not, if not more. And I didn't know how to talk about that. So, you know, after nine months of no longer having anything to, to, to sort of blame the ways, you know, my struggle on, it wasn't alcohol anymore. So, so I am just a bad person. Right. And so that's why I reached the stage where I felt like the best thing for me and everybody around me would be for me to, to not be here. Quitting alcohol was my last hope I thought. Right. Yeah. So I quit that, I, I, you know, I, I thought, you know, I looked at everything else and then eventually it was like, right, there's nowhere else to go. Let's quit alcohol. I quit alcohol. I felt worse. Everybody else that I knew that quit, quit alcohol talked about how amazing it was and it wasn't for me. So, so there's no point in me being here. And that was kind of my, my logic. And that's why I reached that stage where, you know, it was all planned. I was, I was going, it was, it was over for me. Um, but I was lucky to have an experience with my, with my children. Um, that changed everything. And then that kind of set me on the path that I'm on today. So I guess, you know, this is really interesting and it's thank you for talking so openly about it because I, I think there is, these things kind of get very tangled up, you know, like addiction and mental health and depression and, you know, bipolar, like all these other things and pain and trauma and all these things, they all kind of get mixed in together and so when you, it's kind of that chicken and the egg thing, you know, it's like what started which thing. And so where is the kind of the core? And I know for a lot of women, for example, once they've kind of taken away alcohol, you know, that was a symptom. And actually maybe it is, you know, a very profound eating disorder, you know, that, that that's the, the core thing that needs to be healed. Or maybe it is some sort of, you know, profound kind of trauma that's happened. Um, and, you know, and it is that, it, it it's part of the solution and it's certainly sustainable sobriety is like an anchor or a wing to kind of help you kind of get better in your life but if there's something else there then it's not you know 100% the solution mm. Mm. Um, and 
and so what you, you said that something happened with your kids and then I presume that you got support did you at that point so what happened then well actually I mean for me I think you can always just based on what you said there for me I think anything that we do to escape the ways that we feel I think can always be traced back to some kind of pain and, and for me you know just because I stopped using alcohol or stopped using substances as a way to escape the ways that I feel I just started using behaviors after that and that's you know still true to some degree in my life today right my reaction is I don't want to deal with the pain. I don't want to deal with the, the ways that I feel. So I'll try and find something to escape. And, you know, in my life today, that might look like starving myself or binge eating or too much exercise or helping people or posting on social media to get validation. And just because I don't, you know, we talk about uh, changing, you know, putting on things on your face to change your face and all that on social media, just because I put quotes up, it doesn't mean that I don't do the exact same thing with my quotes. Yeah. Just because I, you know, I, I might sit of an evening and think, I don't want to deal with my pain. Let me try and put a good social media post together, put that out, and then spend the rest of the night watching it, get loads of likes and people interacting with it, right? It's the same thing. I, I, I might make it look a little bit different so I can hide it from myself and it becomes less obvious, but it's still the same thing. Um, uh, but but in terms of what happened after that weekend with my children, you know, because I knew I was going to die when I went to see them, because I went to see them for one last time to say goodbye, really, and I was very at peace. And, um, because I knew that I was going to die, the past became irrelevant and the future was, was non-existent. And for the first time ever in my life, I was present with my kids in a way that I'd never experienced before. I remember cuddling my daughter and feeling it and thinking, I've always logically known that I love my children. I've always logically known that I was grateful to, to be a father to them, but I'd never felt it. I'd never, it'd never been something that I had experienced as a feeling because I'd never experienced any of my feelings. I'd always run away from them. And I don't think you get to choose which feelings you run away from, by the way, if you, you shut yourself off to one, you shut yourself off to all of them. And I'd, I'd lived with that numbness throughout my life. You know, I, uh, even when I was happy, I was playing at it. Um, the difference I think after that weekend is that I started to engage properly in the help and support that was around me. I'd always to a degree, you know, at that time I started going to 12 step fellowships when I first started drinking and I was sort of, um, using them in an addictive manner, which, which you see a lot, by the way. Um, and I wasn't being honest with anyone. And I think, you know, after that weekend, one of the things that has stuck with me and stayed with me throughout the kind of journey that I've been on since then is to question everything, even the things that I say, because, you know, the first thing that I'll chuck out, will normally be something will normally be an attempt to protect myself or the people around me. So let me question everything that I say and let me find a way to, to come out, when I go down a path of um, untruth, because I'll do that. Here's why I feel like this. Here's why I'm doing this. This sounds nice. It's packaged great. And everybody can feel great about it. So so let me try and get towards the truth. And the truth for me um, doesn't always look nice and fun. So I, you know, I started when I was engaging in the groups of people that I was sharing with, I started, if I sat there and felt ungrateful and like I hated everybody that was smiling when they were sober then I would say today I feel ungrateful uh I, I hate all of you I hate how happy you are when you talk about your sobriety and I don't want to be here and I'd rather be drunk and I would um you know people talk about these things like my happiest my, my worst day sober is still better than my best day drunk and I would sit there and say well that ain't true for me because the way that I feel right now I'd much I'd be better off drunk and so you know, those things ultimately in the end may not have turned out to be true, but if they were what I was thinking and feeling in that moment, 
rather than trying to package them up as something nice in an attempt to make myself and the people around me feel better, I would say my core truth. Because when I said that, then I started to gain some kind of freedom from it. And I think that's been something that stuck with me throughout the journey that I've been on since then is to always find my truth, even if it feels offensive to myself and the people around me. Say it, even if I know it's not true. If that's what I'm feeling, that's what I'm feeling. And I think that's that kind of truth seeking has been vital for me in, in what I do and what I've done on my journey, you know? I find that really interesting in that my brain is starting to work. So pull me back, man, if I go off on one, feel free to, to pause me. But I was thinking about the kind of um, how sometimes it's really important. It, we need to go to the other extreme before we can find the middle path, right? Mm-hmm. So if you've never done that, it's like if you've spent uh, years and years kind of going, hiding and being that chameleon and disconnected like I think so many people can relate to that and that's what so I mean I think to a degree that's what alcohol does in society right it it just kind of it medicates the unacceptable ugly feelings and it anything at the end of either spectrum it's like let's medicate all that so we don't ever have to learn tools around it let's let's just pretend it doesn't happen let's pretend that's just because of that and it's like um so if you've you know if you've never done that it's like I need to really to practice being that kind of yeah that that rude that fucking rude person that goes fuck you because that's like that's got to be a muscle to be used until at some point maybe like who knows maybe it won't be a need, but it's like, cause it was so much the other way. You got to do that. You got to, mm. got to make, you know, use that skill almost learn that skill. I don't know. Yeah. And, and, and I think you should always have groups of people that allow you that space to do that all of the time. So, so, you know, there will always be that part of me that says, you know, the things that I've just said to you that I started saying, they still come up and I need a group of people that allow me to, to express that and know that I'm simply expressing it. I'm not looking yeah. to be fixed or corrected. I'm venting and I'm releasing that emotion so that it doesn't stay down buried in me. And the moment often that you release it and yeah. say it free from judgment, then you realize yeah, yourself. I don't even think yeah. that. I don't know why I said that. Yeah, it's you know? having that space, right, isn't it? It's like having your your group, your people, whatever you call it, and that therapeutic space of others, so that connection being the opposite of addiction, where we can share our truths, walks mm-hmm. and all with each other. Like so yeah. powerful. Mm. Mm. Yeah, there's a couple of things there. I mean, because I know that you identify as a highly sensitive person, mm-hmm. um, which I wanted to sort of talk about um, as a man. I don't think I've ever seen a man write that on their profile. So I was like, wow, this is fucking progress you know because (laughs) I think for I mean both Kate and I identify as highly sensitive people and we know that there's a lot of women within our group that are starting to come like oh that's why like everything was a panic and everything was you know going into a pub was like okay let me just have a drink first because this is all a lot (laughs) I need to bring myself you know Um, like yeah it's traumatic just sort of be in the world a lot of the time but I know you also talk about kind of family systems and playing that role you know and and within someone that had you know a parent 
that was an alcoholic, um, that that was your role to to be the joker or to be that kind of to people please. Or so I wanted you to just to explain that a little bit because you're very eloquent when you talk about that. How that part of the relationship with your dad led you, I suppose, to play that role in your life yeah well I think like firstly with the highly sensitive stuff I believe that, that that there's a there's a large element of genetic part in that if you look at like the science they reckon there's like a hundred and diff, 150 thousand or something ridiculous different species of of, of animals that, that are highly sensitive right so there's there's kind of a lot of science around that and there's you know there's a lot of misunderstandings of what sensitive being highly sensitive means they reckon around 15 percent of humans are, are, are highly sensitive uh, it's often mistaken for being shy, by the way. Sensitivity doesn't always mean shy. And actually, uh, there's a large percentage of people that would identify as highly sensitive that are actually ex- extroverted, uh, at, at least externally anyway. I would call myself an ambivert in terms of I, I sort of almost hide my introvertism behind my extrovertism. Yeah, um, so I sort of, I sort of <laughs> tap into both of them. Uh, which, which, you know, that's, I, I love being around people and being around crowds until I don't, and then I hate humans and I want to be on my own. Um, so I think that kind of genetic factor lent itself into why I possibly took on the role that I did within the family that I did. Um, and then taking on that role brought hypervigilance and kind of, a an, an, an uh, an openness to, to, to that sensitivity that really sort of dug into it and made it really feel like an open wound for a lot of my life. And that was, um, you know, I sensed um, very clearly, very distinctly, and more than sensed, I felt um, the way that my mum felt about how my dad drank when I was younger. And this is not something that I necessarily fully recall as a memory, but it's a memory that I can almost understand that I have in my senses, in my feeling. And I remember um, feeling the burden of of how my mum felt about my dad's drinking, and you know, not necessarily consciously but abandoning myself and my own needs and my own feelings in order to show up for how my mum needed me to be. And I would bask in the um, the happiness of when I recognised that something that I did or a way that I was changed the way that my mum felt. When I saw my mum be, be happy, when I saw her pain and her sadness turn to happiness and I heard her say things like, we must be doing something right, look how well Josh is doing or you know, all that kind of stuff. Essentially, when I when I when I sensed her wounded inner child um, have its needs met by what I was doing, I felt some kind of validation. And as a child, I mistook that validation for love. And so I grew up with the belief that love um, required me to do and be a certain way in order to receive it. And so in my relationships, rather than showing up and sharing with you who I am um, and what I'm feeling, I work out who you need me to be, what you're feeling, and I work off of that. Uh, the, the, the issue with that is it's in itself, it's an act of self-abandonment and keeps me alone because we think loneliness is driven by how much of myself, uh, sorry, how many people I've got around me, but actually it's driven probably more, I would argue, by how much of myself I'm willing to share with you. I could have three close friends that I share every part of my soul with, and it's going to be way more useful than a million friends who I don't share any of myself with. I'll feel much more alone in the in the latter. So the sensitivity part of that meant that I spent my life picking up on other people's emotions 
and and feeling like it was my responsibility to alter them emotions uh, you know look at my marriage today for example in the early stages at least of my, my marriage with my wife if she wasn't 100% if she was 98% she's a mum of our children who you know she ain't 100% all the time of course she's not she's a human being and when she was 98% the pressure I would put on her to get back to 100% because when she's 98%, it feels like my responsibility. What have I done? Is it me? Are you upset with me? Even though logically I can know that it's nothing to do with me, I can't get away from the way that it makes me feel. Um, and it can become such a burden on your life um, until you start to learn about it and you start to understand it on a deeper level. And then it can become uh, an absolute superpower. And I, And I think just to add to that while we're here, um, sensitive men, um, often look like angry men because the way they are taught to combat their sensitivity when they're younger is to toughen up and be stronger. And so when they feel overwhelmed, like they want to cry, which happens a lot for a sensitive person, as I'm sure you both know, they have to combat that. The only way they can fight that is by having an angry outburst. And getting angry. And so I think, you know, when I got involved in football violence in my young adulthood, I can tell you now that the groups of men that I went about with at football looking for violence, two things were true in nearly all of them. The first one was that they experienced some kind of trauma within their life, yeah, absent father or whatever it may be. And the second was that at their core, they were sensitive men and they, they, they had built up layer and layer and layer to combat and deal with that sensitivity. Yeah. Um, this is touching a core for both of us, I think. Um, yeah, really I think you know, as, as, as uh, yeah, having husbands and sons. Um, yeah, sorry about that. It's very moving to hear you articulately and so honestly talking about this. And it is, it's like, okay, yeah. You know, we got boys, we've got husbands, you know, my dad uh, was an alcoholic, you know, and I hear you, that piece where you said about abandoning yourself, like, I hear that so loud and that was such a key piece for me in the sobriety and, 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 but the healing piece after I've been sober and then not sober again, that, that is for me. And, and I talk about it on a different, you know, different podcast. It's not my episode, whatever, but I just wanted to say, since you're sharing and we're in our little three bubble on this podcast, I just want to go, you know, thank you. And I, I hear you, you know, I hear you. And what you say is so fucking important, Josh. Thank you. Mm. Thank you. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, I guess, so what have been your key tools? I mean, for Kate, it was very much that um, self-compassion piece, you know, the, the work of Tara Brack and being able to recognize, allow, investigate, nurture. That was her way back to herself, you know, very much in that profound way. So what have been your tools? I mean, groups, that connection, but what tools do you use for you that has been able to let you build that trust with yourself I guess and that reconnection with yourself the, the, the first the first one and you've said it the, the the main and major one is self-compassion right and self-compassion has to start now right it has to start in, in how I feel about myself today and I think you know self-compassion being rooted in in self-love um I I have to 
recognize and understand the ways in which I feel about myself in the way that I show up to the world today. Now I can go out and do some amazing work. I can stand on stage and give a talk and everyone can tell me how amazing it is. And I can come off there and I can feel, you know, a, a, a sense of love about myself. Right. And think, you know, wow, that was amazing. And everybody's told me how amazing it was. Right. But what about the moments when I wake up in my life and I do the things that I don't like about that I do? Yeah. When I, when I reach for the escape button, however that looks in my life today, when I do something in my life that I wouldn't, I'm not proud of and that I feel like I can't explain and I wouldn't want to stand up in a court and try and justify, right? How do I feel about myself in those moments? And I think it comes back to the understanding of the fact that my value exists because I exist and finding love for myself is not about going out and becoming good enough and becoming lovable. I'm lovable simply because I exist. And the journey is about peeling back the layers and finding out the reasons why I gain the belief that in certain aspects of my life, I'm not lovable. And I can tell you that my belief is that that can be trained, traced back to when I was a child. And I believe that everyone, every child should have the right to one loving and nurturing adult that can help and support them to their I amness. And when I say their I amness, I mean know that they are lovable in their full range of emotions when they're happy, sad, lonely, angry, jealous, rageful. And let's be really clear about the, the, the more difficult emotions like rage, like jealousy, like all of those things. When we're younger, we need an adult mirroring back at us, helping us to understand that the way that we react to them sometimes may not be acceptable, but that we are lovable in all of those. We live in a society where we don't do that to children. How many children have grown up in an environment where a parent says to them when they're simply expressing their anger and an expression of anger is simply in an attempt to communicate how I'm feeling, but that I don't necessarily have a good way to do it yet because nobody's taught me. And yet when I express my anger, I get, don't you dare behave like that in this house. And I am literally told that I'm not acceptable when I'm angry. So mm. of course I internalize my anger. If I grew up in an environment where I really know that my mum is stressed and sad as a result of my dad's drinking, then perhaps when I'm stressed and sad, I learn that I'm not going to be acceptable when I'm stressed and sad. So I never learn how to be stressed and sad in a productive and human way. So to, to bring it back to the question, for me, a lot of it comes back to the reparenting. Can I find the needs that for whatever reason didn't get met when I was a child. And I believe this happens to all of us, by the way, you can have the best parents in the world and you will have certain needs that are not met. Yeah. Can I find them? Can I try and understand them? And then can I meet them? So a simple thing that I do, for example, when I was a young man and when I was in my late teens and my early twenties, I would have said any man that puts cream on his face, right? Is a wet, is, is a melt, right? And it's pathetic. Men don't do that, right? Now somewhere subconsciously in me, I was saying that because I knew how much I craved it. Now, now, what do I mean by that? Well, in my life today, every day, morning, in the morning and at night, I put some creams on my face. I've got like an eye cream and I spend, you know, I spend a little bit of money on them, right? And they're important to me. Now, there is a piece here that is worried about how I'm aging and whether I'm going to be lovable with wrinkles on my face. There is, of course, a piece there. But, but, um, and more importantly, I believe that, and I don't remember this, but I believe that one of the needs that I probably didn't have met as a one or two year old 
was a was my mum having the ability to touch my face and pull my skin and and tell me how lovable I was and have all of that interaction when I was younger because she was so stressed by what was going on with my dad. And so I'm meeting those needs myself today. I look myself in the mirror, I put the creams on my face and I say, I'm trying to love you with some skin to skin interaction and repair myself in that way. Now that might sound to some crazy, but I can tell you that it's helped me um, to meet needs that, that have previously not been met in my life for whatever reason. And so I say, you know, to bring it back to the question, I've probably gone off on a tangent, but to bring it back to the question, what's been some of the most important work it's been finding out the needs that haven't been met in my life and finding ways to meet them, however that may look, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, we talk a lot about that. And I think there's what you said was really, I was kind of holding on to, like, please say it's not all my fault. Like, as a mum, like, we hold so much of this in ourselves. And it's like, you know, I know, like, for both of us, you know, we've had our own experiences with alcohol, you know, like people listening it's one of those things it's we've had our own story right so we we've we've come into parenting with our own story and that holds a lot of shame guilt worry stress um and you know and it's it's like you can have the best parents in the world but you you are your own person and you imprint things in your own way and like we we're all just doing the best we can and and so there is that sort of thing of that it's really empowering I think to know that we're not perfect that we might have made mistakes but we can learn tools and then we can share those tools mm. with our kids and then they can learn tools themselves and they can take that as an empowering thing to as you say reparent you know and it's it, depending on your own experiences you know I had a very very sort of strong you know loving upbringing my dad's a social worker my mom you know breastfed me a long time you know they 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 had very traumatic childhoods themselves so they were very keen to make sure that we were very loved and read lots of books um but they come with their own story too right so there were things that they did that perhaps didn't suit me as an individual which left an imprint and and I think when you can get to that point where it's like it's all okay <laughs> you know what happened happened or, or in my life and in theirs that could be a real point of just of change really just to go okay well we're we're all here and we all came with what we came with and what can we do about it and how can we yeah sort of learn those skills and teach those skills I think so mm, yeah and it's that acceptance right that I mean look as a parent myself if I get it right 30% of the time I think I'm doing amazing it's very easy for me to sit here and sort of articulate all the things that I have in a way that's nice and digestible, but come into my household and watch me when I'm a father and I'm seeking attachment for my children and that needy inner child of mine is reaching out to my children to try and have its needs met. And you're going to see something completely different to the guy that sits here eloquently talking about what I'm talking about. So, you know, that's why self-compassion becomes, becomes vital because I see it all the time, you know, I, it was my daughter's third birthday party on Sunday. What did I spend Sunday night saying to my daughter? Did you have fun? How amazing was your birthday? Did you enjoy your birthday? That's my needy inner child. Validate me, right? That's, but I'm, I'm, I'm looking for that. I picked my daughter up from school. Did you miss me? That's, that's my needy inner child. How much did you miss daddy today? That's my needy inner child trying to get his needs met, you know? But I think the difference is, is that when we become awake to it, then we're able to be present 
with our children. Here's the thing. Children know everything. They know more about us than we know. People say your children soften you. I don't think your children soften you. I think they, they pull down the barriers that we have to try and protect ourselves from our own softness, right? So, so you know, one of the biggest struggles I had with my was with my son who's nine years old. Why did I struggle with him? Because he's sensitive in the same way that I am. And he pulled down every single, he don't care about my barriers to my sensitivity, the kind of things that I'd put up. He tore them down and I couldn't deal with it. And so I think one of the biggest problems that a lot of children face is apathetic parents, parents who are not aware and want to hide it all, you know, and, 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 and parents who just consistently always say, there's nothing wrong. There's nothing. Don't worry. Stop worrying. There's nothing wrong. Right. Because a child then starts to think, I could have sworn, I could have sworn you were arguing with dad earlier. I could have sworn there was an atmosphere and you, you just keep telling me that there's not, um, there's must be something wrong with me. Right. That's yeah. what, that's what a child's going to learn. But but if we can start to become open and we can say to our children, you know, you're right. Me and your, me and your mum fell out last night. And that doesn't mean that we don't love each other. Right. But what you sensed was right. And I'm sorry that you sensed it, but, but this is part of being a human. Right. And I think that's a lot different than, than the kind of apathetic, shut it down, just pretend, sweep it all under the carpet environment that I think we're almost taught mm. to raise our kids in to a degree, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I just want to go go back as well to that what you said about just the, the self-compassion piece, because it's like um there's a few things that you said in there. It's like it's so important, isn't it? The, the journey of parenting, the journey of life. What you said about at the moment when you need it actually when you don't need self-compassion when you're feeling like the boss of your game. You need self-compassion when you just screwed it up or when you've got up a bit and you're just not like and I, I've definitely had a thing of this week where I was struggling to hold myself a few times because I've done a few things professionally which just I was I, I just was went into this reactive space, right? And I really struggled with that, that, that holding myself. And this kind of self-aversion that can kick off at any time and it's like okay so that's when we need the self-compassion when we don't when we're not feeling that great about it and and what you said as well about going back to that the child that bit of that that bit of you and that's again that goes back to Tara Brack that she talks about the trance of unworthiness that we're all in Mm. but actually if we go through if we go through that listening in and then at that moment, we witness our kind of suffering. And then the piece that I needed, which was never just about mindfulness or like, oh, I know what that is. I know it's like, what do I need? Which is the reparenting bit. Because mm. I see quite a few people on, on forums talking about, you know, just sitting with the feelings, just sitting with the pain. just sit. And I'm like, why would you do that? You need to get back in there and then go, what do you need, sweetheart? Mm. And that's what you've pulled out really beautifully. I love that thing about your, you know. And then we can keep it real more, can't we? Because we're not so freaking terrified of ki- of the fact that we just cried in front of our children. And we, or that thing about, I have no idea what to say to my child right now. Like, I, mm. I don't even know how to have this conversation, you know. And that is terrifying as a parent, isn't it? But somehow, if we're, you know, sometimes I sit with my son and go, you know, I've not done this before. Like you're my yeah. first thirteen year old. Like I, I, I really need to think about this, and I need to know what you think about it, and I need to chat, and I don't know what, I, and and I'm actually, you know, I really try and keep it real with him, you know. 
Yeah. Um, and I think that's better. You teach yeah. them to how, how to be a human. People often say to me, um, you know, should I talk to my, my kids about it? And I say, well, it's up to you. If you talk to them, they already know. Yeah. If you're struck, they already know. So it's up to you. Whether you yeah. I mean, I would say, talk to them about it because otherwise they're going to be thinking, I feel this sense that, you know, if they're talking about me, I feel this sense that my dad's not present tonight and he's, and he's stressed about something. So I even make them think that what their feelings wrong and they shouldn't trust it. Or I go, you know what? You're right. I don't, I'm sorry that today I, 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 I'm not being as present as I, as I can be, but I'm trying my best. And I, you know, I want to be here for you and all that kind of stuff. Then I'm teaching them what it is to be, to be human. Children are highly intuitive. All children are, they don't have to be highly sensitive. They, they have to be intuitive because that's how they survive in the world. Pre-language. They have to sense what you're feeling because they're seeking attachment from you. We don't like that children are intuitive because it ex- makes us feel exposed and we, and we don't like it. When I'm trying to hide from my stress, I'm trying to hide from the way that I'm feeling and my kids come in and hold it up to my face like that and say, you, you need to, I want you to look at this because I can feel it. I don't like it. And if I'm not careful, I'll suppress it in them. Don't be stupid. There's nothing. I'm fine. Right. Just leave it. It's fine. There's nothing wrong. Stop going on about it. And if I'm not careful, I'll make it about them. You're, you're the issue here. And listen, I could do that tonight, despite sitting on here and telling you what I'm telling you. So I think that's why I'll bring it back again to that self-compassion stuff. I'll quote um, Dr. Gabay, Dr. Gabor Mate. One of his fav- my favorite lines from him is, um, I'm a human being who has not yet found a better way to soothe my pain. So I'm going to forgive myself. And I think when I can say that to myself in a moment when I've reacted to how I feel, then I can come back to, to, to still loving who I am because I'm a human being and, and, and that's the way the world is, you know? Yeah. Amazing. Um, yeah, I love Gabo Mato's work. Okay, so tell us about your work. Tell us about what is a resistance coach and a little bit about what you do. Resilience. 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 It's, it's an interesting uh, slight of the tongue, actually, to, to, to say resistance resistance coach. I think... Uh, when I when that I you know when things changed for me when things changed for me um, and I looked around and I knew I needed to kind of build some kind of resilience I didn't know that I I, I didn't call it resilience at the time I I felt like I needed to build some kind of strength and when I looked around at um, the, the the kind of men in that sphere uh, it was all like the kind of Ant Middleton real tough strong guy keep going push on yeah. Uh, push through no matter what. And that didn't resonate with me. And in fact, I'd done that all my life. My whole entire life, I had um, kept going. I dealt with everything that life threw at me and it took me to the point of nearly breaking. And so I wanted to kind of look at resilience in a new way and trying to find understand what it means to me. And, you know, the thing that I came to is that although toughness is is a part of my resilience, sometimes I need to bite down on the gum shield and keep going, right? That can't be my only tactic because if you think of it, the best way to say it is if you think of a tough material as being like a hard plastic, the strength in a hard plastic is that it can take a lot of impact, but eventually it will snap. And when a hard plastic snaps, it can't be used in its original form. It's useless. And I spent my life being rigid, hard plastic. And eventually at 24 years old, I nearly broke. So long-term, what we want to be is much more like elastic. And that is to know that we can bend and distort and go out of shape but the strength lies in our ability to be able to come back however quickly that that might happen. So then resilience to me becomes about 
at its core, fully understanding what I'm feeling, recognizing what I need as a result of that feeling, and then making sure that I can communicate it to get that need, whatever that need might be. If that's to reach out and get help and support, then that's an act of resilience, right? Uh, if that's to um, express with somebody that I'm struggling with something that they're doing, then that's an act of resilience. So it's understanding um, the kind of two sides of it, recognizing that sometimes I do need a bit of toughness, but if that's all I'm showing up as, then eventually I'm going to snap and I'm going to break. So, so I need to, I need to make sure that I come back to myself and it comes back to what we were just saying about that communicating my need. I have to, the, 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 I have to be able to communicate that need. And and by the way, you have to find out why you, why you don't like to communicate that need. So I always say in my, in my marriage, for example, my wife is very, very, very strong, um, very kind of firm, knows what she wants, knows how to express it. Very good at communicating it. If I do something that makes my wife uncomfortable, she says, Josh, we need to talk about this. I don't like it. And I go, all right, okay, we call, we sit down we have a chat, right? We come to an agreement or whatever it may be. We both know where we're at, clear boundary. Everybody's very comfortable. If my wife does something that I don't like, I don't say anything because I'm worried if I do, then she won't love me or she'll think that I don't love her in the way that I need and want her to know that I love her. So I keep it to myself. And then six weeks later, I'm blowing up about no milk in the fridge. We sit down to have a conversation and I go, six weeks ago, you did this thing. She's like, six weeks ago. Why don't you just say, I don't even like doing that. I would have, we could, I would have stopped and I can't communicate. What, Why? comes back to everything that comes back to that same idea that I believe that in and of myself, I'm not lovable and that love is very, very conditional. Now, there, of course, there are conditions on adult loving relationships of some kind, but I believe that the conditions are to abandon myself and show up and be exactly who that person needs me to be. And that's unrealistic. Do you know, I love what you said about resilience, you know, because that's what I call self-care. Mm-hmm. It's, it is it's very interesting, isn't it? It's mm. Identify a need, be able to advocate for yourself, be able to either meet it or advocate for yourself, support, good routine. Sometimes it's toughing it out. Sometimes it's like, I need to do a hedgehog roll. You know what I mean? And it's all of those. It's like the life tools stuff that we talk about. And it is that it's incredibly resilient. And it's so, it's really funny because if you're um, from a sort of a masculine point of view, it's almost like, Okay, so we think resilience is all about the being strong and the da da da, and we can't do that. And as women, like the self care bit gets a bad rap as well. Oh, what? You're just going to have a bubble bath then? It's like, no, this is about freaking self leadership and mm-hmm. self care. It's like the whole 360, isn't it, for men and women? Like, what if? What if we could go, wowza, that need. Wowza, I understand it. Wowza, I am encouraged to listen in, advocate for myself, given a toolkit and have a community to to work this out with it's like what what would it look like for people if that was the kind of that's what we were encouraged to do exactly and that is exactly what i you know that's the work that i do when i go into the into corporate organizations and you know whenever i deliver the training that i deliver i ask everybody what they think about resilience and they tell me all that stuff i've got to keep going Right, the ability to cope with everything that life's the the ability to remain positive in in face of like difficult struggles. And I think if you find a way to be positive when life's being horrible to you, you know, power to you. Because I, I don't. Sometimes I think life's crap on any given day, and that's just my truth. That's just my that's just my truth. And this is what I say to people. You know, I do resilience training. People say to me, "Are you resilient?" I say sometimes. 
<laughs> Some days I wake up and everything goes out the window and I'm, I'm, I'm the worst example of resilience there is going, right? But, but that's because I'm a human being. But, but it's the very understanding of that that in, is in itself, and this is the kind of paradox of it, that, that makes me be resilient because I, I see myself in my entirety as, as, as often as I can, right? And, and, I, and, I, and I don't put myself under pressure to be a version of myself that I can't show up to be. Yeah, and I love that, that it's not like, a, you know, you're not on your own with it. Like, um, I remember when I was in therapy and, you know, my therapist said, you're, you're extremely resilient. And I was like, I don't want to be resilient. I want someone to look after me. Like, I'm sick. Of, I've been resilient my whole life. Like, enough of that, like dealing with stuff. But it's because I had it all wrong. And then when I started to learn about what resilience actually is, and it is that the fact that I was there in therapy, that's what made me resilient, not the mm. fact that I've been dealing with all this stuff for so long. It was the fact that I turned up and I was in the process of healing post-traumatic stress disorder. That was my resilience, not the fact that I'd been dealing with it for so long. So it's not that like I'm just hardcore and I don't ever show weakness. It's I'm consistently trying to help myself heal. Mm. That's what resilience is to me. So, yeah, it's like an overarching thing, isn't it? There's yeah. a timeline that we're so used to going, right, we'll do this and we'll sprint. It's like, it's like bending, bending with the forces of life that get thrown at us. And then sometimes we're more knocked off balance, but then we'll come back. And it's an, and it's a long process. It's a longevity, you know, it's a life. It's a, yeah. And it's it, it, it's a path and a journey, but, but but it's one that we're all on. I mean, people often ask me, when did your healing journey begin? And I say, it wasn't at 24 when I stopped drinking. It was at 12 when I started drinking. Mm. That was my first attempt to try and regulate and deal with the ways that I felt. I mean, it was a failed attempt in the end, but it was the first attempt. I always think of uh, one of, I think it's one of Russell Brand's books, when he gets in with the therapist for the first time and talks about doing heroin. And she says to him, well done for finding a way to keep yourself alive in this world. And you think, oh. well, hang on a minute. That's a new way of looking at it. And so and respectful, just, right? Rather than exactly, you know, rather than the shame that we, um, the shame that we heap on ourselves, you know. Um, and I think that you know that's even a, there's a point to be had there in terms of the way that we talk about sobriety as well. Um, in terms of making sure that we don't get too shaming of of the way in which people drink alcohol, because you know, at 21 years old when I drank alcohol, I was I always say alcohol saved my life really kept me alive for a long time there was times when I thought about killing myself at the age of 18 and I got drunk instead mm. you know so again it's a it's a paradox and it's a it's you know it's a big paradox but but it's true they're all they're all still attempts at trying to protect myself and trying to trying to save myself and I guess building resilience is about picking up tools trying them seeing if they work for you and then recognizing if they don't and being able to come through them and, and then find something else. And the things that I thought were good for me three years ago possibly could have been good for me three years ago, but might not be good for me in my life today. So I have to be constantly evolving and growing, you know, as a, a as a person in my own resilience, because if I get too fixed or caught up in thinking that certain things are the answers, then it all comes crashing down, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I love that. And that, that's exactly what we were talking about with our group yesterday. It's that opening it up and that exploration and just keep adding in things and you know and it is it's we we used a coping me mechanism for something until it didn't 
work anymore and mm. so now we have to find something else and we're just shifting that to something that is you know more self-loving than it is self-harming you know and that's mm. essentially the shift and 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 a lot of that was about ignorance and a lot of that was about kind of the world that we live in and how especially with alcohol like how alcohol centric it is you know mm. it's just like that's acceptable to to self-soothe with alcohol um and so you know that it's not surprising that that is kind of a place where a lot of people get stuck. Um, so yeah, to tell us a little bit about um, Nakoa, um, how did you get involved in the first place, and and what what do you do as a as a charity, and how can people help and support? So look, Nakoa is predominantly at the core. It's a it's a helpline that anyone affected by a parents drinking can call and speak to a trained helpline counsellor anonymously. And we have children as young as five years old phone the helpline and people right through into sort of old age. Um, I found Nakoa uh, about I don't know six or seven years ago, uh, something like that. Anyway, uh, but but I didn't believe that I was the child of an alcoholic in any sense of the matter you know my dad died when I was nine years old I went in there as somebody who had given up drink and wanted to give back and it wasn't until I'd done the training to become a helpline counsellor that I realized wow this is me this is what I'm struggling with this is you know impacted my life on such a huge scale and I never realized that that could be the case so um you know I became passionate at that moment I you know I think I was like 25 years old at the time and I was like why the hell have I reached 25 and nobody's nobody's ever told me that my feelings are justified, that they make sense, that some of the things that I'm feeling make absolute sense based on what I felt. Uh, and, you know, I became passionate then about Nakoa and the work that they do. And sort of in the last three or four years, we ran a big campaign. Uh, it was found that there was no, you know, no constituents, zero constituents across England and Wales had any kind of plan to support a child affected by a parent's drinking. Meaning if you walked into a service um, and you had a child with you, you would get support, but there was nothing for the child. Um, and so we campaigned for like three or four years. And now at the end of that campaign or, you know, the penultimate part of that campaign was 75% now have a plan. There was 6 million funding um, that was uh, put forward the first ever of its kind. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things that Nakoa do that's really, really important is they understand that, um, if the parent, if the, the drinker, the parent that drinks need a, needs a lifetime of healing, they recognize that the child does too, that this is a family illness that affects everybody within the family. I can tell you, I, I, I had a catastrophic problem with alcohol in the way that I drank it. Catastrophic the way that I drank. I've been sober for eight and a half years. And the work that I predominantly do on myself now is based about my childhood, around my childhood, not making sure that I don't drink. Um, the thing that I believe I'll be healing from for a lifetime is being the child of an alcoholic. Um, and I'll be, you know, I believe personally that becoming an alcoholic myself was a reaction to what happened to me when I was a child. And that's my belief. And that's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm an ambassador for NACOA now. I've done lots of stuff with, with, with training up um, teachers and police and children's services across England and Wales now. Um, we've delivering training all over the country um, to try and help everybody understand the importance of supporting these children, um, not making these children's um, chances and opportunity for recovery and healing, not making it dependent on their parents' 
um, stopping drinking and making sure that we can empower and support them uh, irrespective of whether their parents are ready to, to, to find their own support. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, super inspiring. And like, I mean, Kate and I have both been kind of within sober forums for about eight, eight years or so. And um, so much has shifted in that time. And it's really, really, you know, exciting. And I think there was, we, we did, um, when the book came out, there was a, a new report that came out that was the first one sort of saying, you know, alcohol is a social problem that we need to look at for family and, and for children. You know, it's not about individuals, it's about the impacts on families, um, which is a huge, huge shift. Mm. Um, so if people want to, you know, donate, support, what's the best way that people can? If you go on the website, so our website's just been updated. It's an incredible resource now. Um, it's an incredible resource, the website. And that's just nacoa, N-A-C-O-A dot um, There's lots of ways to get involved. There's, you know, you can become a volunteer. You can become a speaker volunteer. You can try and work on the helpline that's based in, in Bristol. Uh, but also, you know, any kind of fundraiser is very easy to contact them. Um, and do some fundraising yourself you know we've always been a tiny charity that's relied on donations and volunteers so anything anybody can do is always you know hugely appreciated and i think you know if you've been affected by it personally then you know nakoa has almost like a feeling of a tribe to it that's really welcoming and you can become part of the space so uh look i would recommend it to anyone who changed my life yeah and I think that's a real key thing isn't it it's not just supporting you know young kids which is amazing and I know like for example like I don't know one of the stories touched me the most was sort of reading bedtime stories with the kids mm. you know or just being there with them but you know it's supporting you know adult children of alcoholics as well and th throughout their their lives so if if this is something that's touched you as a person you know it's a support system for yeah for yeah all people affected mm. Um, thanks so much for coming to the end. So, yeah, what kind of plans and projects do you have coming up in the future? And then we'll finish with a tip of the day and then a reason to love being sober. So from from a NACOA perspective, it's all about awareness and trying to get in to reach the schools and make sure that we've got a joined up approach and everybody knows the, the impact of growing up with a parent that drinks too much. Um, from a personal perspective, uh, I've got some exciting things, hopefully, that are going to be happening in 2021. I want to, I've got like a, the idea of an online platform coming soon. Um, so that's only in the early stages. I don't want to commit to saying that that will happen in 2021. Uh, but ultimately to carry on doing the things that I'm doing, you know, I've been fortunate this year that I've been able to work with um, individuals and lots of global organizations around the world. So it's to continue to do that really to continue to help uh, people and understand what resilience is on a deeper level in the way that we've sort of explored today and to continue to reach men really and break down some of the barriers, um, particularly sensitive men and, and, and um, normalize the conversation a bit more. Yeah. Mm, I love it. Mm, that's amazing. Yeah. So what's your, um, yeah, what's your tip of the day? My tip of the day would always be it, my, my, this kind of question. I always answer the same is that however you feel it's valid and you're allowed to feel it. Um, and so don't get too obsessed with changing the ways that you feel. Listen to how you feel. Understand what it's telling you. 
um, and then you, you you'll find the need for that feeling, um, and you'll you'll be able to move through. I spent my whole life thinking that the ways that I felt was wrong. Um, and actually the moment somebody said, you know, the way that you feel makes sense when you look at your story, it changed my life. Uh, so, so my tip of the day would be that your, your feelings are valid, whatever they are. And what's your reason to love sober today? My reason to love sober is, is because it's the very thing. It's the cornerstone and the keystone for me to be able to do the work on myself that I want to do. The one thing that I will always know is that, um, if I, if I wasn't sober, I wouldn't be doing the things I was doing. I wouldn't be able to show up to life in the way, in the way that I do. That doesn't mean that it's all fine and dandy. It just means that when life's tough, I still show up. Um, and for my children, more importantly than anything, the fact that I at least still try and show up is something to be thankful for. So, so that's why I love so well. Nice. Thank you so much. Yeah. 100%. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. So if you're um, immediately concerned about your drinking, just reach out, send up a flare to one of the sober communities. There's so many now online, so you can find your fit. Don't feel like you're on your own. You're absolutely not. Um, Alcohol Change has um, agencies of local support as well. Um, if you're UK-based, um, obviously, you know, check out NACOA as well if that's, you know, do, if you want to support them. Um, or if you have that as part of your story and you've never kind of pieced that together, you know, you might be 70-odd and go oh yeah okay that 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 kind of makes some sense you know there'll be maybe there's something there for you so just whatever it is our call messages don't feel like you're on your own you're not um just get in touch and uh yeah stay safe for another week and we'll see you next week for more chat